Hello everybody and welcome to this, the fifth episode of Fencing by the Book. I'm your host Michael Smoridge and with me today are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney and TQ. Normally I'd start this episode by asking people what they've been up to in the last week, but we're recording this immediately after our fourth episode so nothing's happened. <laughs> Instead uh, I think we'll dive straight into the text because we'll be introducing a lot of new concepts and names and ideas here. So, Johanna, could you give us the, the German, the, the next section of the text? All right. Fünf Heulehre, von der rechten Hand, wer die wäre, und wir geloben, in Kunst gern zu lohn. Zornhau krumpt wer, hat Schiller mit Scheitler, alber versetzt, nachreißen, überlauf, heu setzt, durchwechsel, zuck, auf abschneid, händedruck, eng, wind mit blößen, Slach, Fach, Streich, Stich mit Stößen. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you give us Harry R's translation of that into English? Learn the five strikes to the guard from the right. And this we can promise, your art will be glorious. Zornhau, Krump, Zwer, has Schiller with Scheidler. While the fool will parry, chase, flow over, cut and harry, Pull and disengage, pass through, press hands, slice away, hang and turn to the openings below and above, strike and catch, sweep and thrust with a shove. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Steve. And I, I think it's also worth pointing out here that the all the glosses at this point, after that section of the Zettel, then go into a couple of lists. So the first one, it lays out the five hues, the five, um, what would we say, hidden, obscured? Uh, hues. Just the five hues. Yeah. Okay, so we've got the Zornhau, which is, I, I like to call it the angry hue, but it's normally <laughs> given as wrath hue. Then we've got the the Krumphau, which would be curved, crooked. What do you give it as, Steve? Uh, crooked. Crooked, okay. Then we've got the Tverhau, or the Zverchau. Or if you're an American, the Zwerkow. <laughs> which is... Ouch. Zwerkow. <laughs> I, I, I prefaced this entire podcast oh, by yes, saying that I can't speak. So, so that's the, the thwart hue, the cross cut. Oh cross god, hue. it's not the thwart hue. Stop, don't say thwart hue. Lateral. <laughs> it's the lateral heel. <clears throat> lateral the, the, the cross cut. Yep. It's the dwarf cut. Everybody knows that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Then we've got the shield how, uh, which is the, the squint hue. I, I really love that I've got a translation here calling it the glancing or the cockeyed cut. Because, cock yeah, in, in modern German, isn't it like boss eyed? So when you've got a, a lazy eye. Oh, I, I don't really know. Okay. I usually call it shield how. Yeah, I think so. And then we've got the fifth of them, the scheitel how, which is the. The parting cut, the peak, the apex, the scalp. The one that aims to the top of the head. Yeah. Skull splitting you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at, at, at the moment, I'm, I'm mentally translating it as the PQ, because I can type that with only two letters, and that makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the level that I'm at. Um, so, so after giving those five cuts, it goes on to a whole list of techniques. Um, we've got four guards. We've got four 
versetsons, which is what? Parry, displacement, for fending. Attacks. 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 It, it's a word that really just covers all we the can, fencing, doesn't it? We can do another a whole episode on that word. Which we yeah. will. Oh, yeah. I don't want to uh, Then we've got uh, traveling after, Nat Horizon, racing behind. Um, next, next up, Uberlaufen, overrunning. I think everybody's pretty agreed with overrunning or running over for that, aren't they? Yeah. Overflowing. Yeah. Harry says flowing over. Ah, good for Harry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did it scan better? I've also heard crossing over, which it has interesting meaning. Okay. Uh, next up, I haven't actually got the German in front of me, um, but it's setting off, displacing. What's that? Is that absepton? That would be setting yeah. aside, yeah. Yeah. Uh, changing through, so that's Dutch Elm. Everybody's pretty agreed about that as well, aren't they? Yeah. Pretty. I say disengage. Oh, that's because you're an FA fan, sir. Shifting through, I've also heard. Shifting through. Okay. Uh, next up, we got. Uh, is it Zuckin next? Yep. Please. Yep. Yanking. Jerking. Jerking. Yanking. Somebody <coughs> else. This one is disengaged. Bring back. Um, this is all future arguments that we're going to have. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> naming all the contentious episodes. <laughs> then we've got running through. Um, is that a Alphen? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it must be Uber Alphen earlier for, for running. Uh, Does you got... translate that one differently? He says pass through. Passing through. Hmm. Alphen being passing. Then I'm guessing it's Ab Schneiden slicing off, cutting off. Yep. And hand drucken, hand pressing. Everybody agrees on that. It's beautiful. No, I disagree. <laughs> okay, thank <laughs> you, Steve. Oh, so <laughs> The voice of reason. But we'll come to that later. Right, it could be crushing. Yep. Uh, then we've got hangings. That I think I want to agree with them. Angulations. Yep. And then we've got windings, which is obviously turning. Doesn't Christian Schrosclair do something crazy with hangings where he translates them as like inclinations or angulations or something? Yeah, yeah, that's true. In Latin, what's the Latin for inclinatione? So in Paulus Hector Meyer's Latin, it's inclinations, basically. Like angles or facings. Because it comes from, it's, it's, I, think, I think that appears in Aristotle in, as one of the divisions of something. Sweet. That's how much I know uh, Aristotle. So this is a big section of lists. <laughs> I think the big thing to say. But the, these are... Uh, what are they described as? They're described as the, the Hauptstück, which is chief techniques. The key pieces, principal pieces. They're the Stück you need to learn to become a captain, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So, so Stück is a word that shows up all the time. And do, do you guys want to talk about Stück? Yeah, sure. So the literal meaning is, uh, I believe, peace. Is that right? It is. Like a piece of something? Yeah, definitely. A stuck of cake, right? Um, yeah. Yes, and also it could be like a piece of music or a piece of art. So yeah. I, I think any of those are, are possible meanings. It's you know flexible like that. I've also been told that in it's also used for like short scripted scenes. Like a play. Um, yes. Which is why we could call it play. 
Does anybody yeah. know what would be used for, I assume it's going to be shtuk as well, um, like a short dance sequence? I think it would be a shtuk. Yeah, like a little choreographed set of dance moves, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, choreography. So short choreography is basically a shtuk. Yeah, okay, cool. So common translations for this word that people use are uh, play is a big one. Um, I like technique when it's talking about a specific technique. Um, some people say device, which I'm not super keen on. So the, the device thing is comes from Jeffrey Forging. And the reason why he chose it is because, according to him, it's a it's how it would have been translated by contemporaries to the German fencing manuals. Like in 16th century English, then device was in fact used that way. So you can sort of see like it's something that was devised by a person for a reason. And he, he acknowledges that it's archaic, but he, it does appear once in Degrassi in that sense. So he thinks it's the proper English term for a fencing move. And it no one else agrees, basically. Right. So if you're trying to translate it into 16th century English, then you'd use device. Exactly. But if, but if you're making a modern translation into modern English, you probably wouldn't. Yeah, we, we have art pieces and dance pieces and stuff like that. Right. But no art And then the second half of this word is the, the haupt. It's the first half of the word. Yes, but we're covering... Oh. Okay, the first half of this word's the haupt. <laughs> so that just means like main or like, uh, you know, important. Mm -hmm. So like um, the Marx Bruder had a hauptman, which was like the head or like the captain of the guild. Yeah, hauptman is like captain or leader. It's a military rank. Uh... Yeah, it is. Cool. So put it together and this is the stuff that we should be caring about. Yeah. According to the Gloucester, yeah. So there's, it's interesting. Um, this has been proposed by various people, but I'm thinking of Jamie Aikett's book, where he proposes that the uh, the point of this entire section is not is to give a sort of index of the title, because according to classical rhetoric, everything had to be divided into certain pieces, and the um, after the introductory remarks, that you had to give a summary of your argument that outlines all of the components of it, and which in German would also be Hauptstücke. So, yeah. and, it, and, and the, the reason for that is because the art of rhetoric in classical literature was also the art of memorizing things. And the reason why you would use rhetoric was to make something easier to memorize, among other reasons. So, having an index at the beginning of it allows you to organize your memories more carefully and remember things more easily. So yeah. the idea is this is the list of things, and then underneath each one of these pieces that you memorized, you'd then arrange the ideas of the rest of the title. Yeah. In, in old universities, didn't you spend your first year learning like rhetoric, and then later on you'd specialize into being a lawyer or a doctor or whatever? Yeah, the, the trivium was logic, rhetoric, and grammar. And those were the main pieces of forming a coherent argument in any discipline and just knowing how to think more effectively. Brilliant. It's very interesting. So I actually use this section of settle as a memnonic before tournament matches. Um, I recite it uh, as part of like warming up for matches and waiting for the ref to call fence. 
just to oh, run through everything cool. in my mind. Um, I listen to disco. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why Mike has gold medals. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so I, I think I'm going to throw some shade here and say, okay, so it starts off with these five hues. They're not called the Master Strikes. No. In, in early Lichten Hour. <laughs> later on, maybe, but in all the sources that we're looking at in this, sorry, Joey, they're not <laughs> called the Master Strikes. Oh. And they are not single-time counters. Oh. Well, we can get into the second one when we do the episodes on each one in turn. Um, yeah, for sure. Yes. When we go to Tempo, we can talk about single-time counters. What they are, the terms that are used uh, for these are either just the five cuts, which is actually the way I talk about them when I'm teaching, or the hidden or verborgene cuts, um, which I'm sure Steve and Joey can translate for us in more I, detail. I, I think it's hidden. Or yeah, concealed, maybe. Cool. Yeah, for verborgen, um, I feel it's only used once, that word, to um, to describe the hues, and I kind of feel like it's just kind of like an adjective that they decided to use that one time because they, I, I think there's several times where they just refer to them as the five hues throughout the uh, throughout the text. So I'd say you can say the, the hidden hues, but you know, just the five hues is okay. And we'll know what each other are talking about. Yeah. Sweet. And there's stuff later on where some of them are used to attack or to break particular guards or positions. As in the Frizzetsons, are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't seem to be the primary meaning here, does it? As in, you mean like breaking guards? Yeah. They're definitely described as doing a bunch of other stuff. I know Michael Chidester has some crazy view about this being two fencing systems glued together with string. So, right. Well, if it's time to talk about that, yeah, for a while I've been I've been amusing myself with the idea that maybe the we know that Lichtenauer, well, we don't know anything, but 3227A assures us that Lichtenauer didn't invent this art that he teaches, but he sort of constructed it from various components he learned from other masters in his own youth when he was traveling around doing whatever he was doing. Um, and based and there's lots of ways you could construe that um, to include maybe he didn't write the title at all and he just inherited it. And there's you know the earlier text by H. Berenger who, which has a lot of the settle already in it, potentially before Lichtenauer was even working. Um, and but also there's the potential that he was sort of taking his favorite fencing systems that he learned and marrying those together. And you could look at the five strikes and the twelve Hauptstücke as being standalone fencing methods that he joined together to make his art of unarmored longsword, um, which is, and there's not a lot of evidence for this because it's just a crazy theory, but it's worth pointing out regardless that the the 12 Hauptstücke sort of follow a sequence that one might expect if you were going to give a, be a class to beginners, right? It starts off teaching guards and then it teaches basic attacks and then it teaches basic ideas of timing and sort of moves through all the Hauptstücke in a logical order that isn't dependent on any earlier teachings. Um, whereas the five strikes make occasional references to the Hauptstücke, but don't, don't 
require you to read that section to understand what they're doing. So you could look at them both as teachings that are independent from each other, even if they were designed to be in the same system. I don't have a great explanation for why the whole teaching seems to start over again after the Scheidelhau with giving you basics all over again. So this is one crazy explanation for it. Pretty cool. Yeah, the the structure of, of these uh, 17 Hauptstücke is unusual, even amongst other lessons of the Zettel itself, because usually you see you have a set of guards and then a set of things that you can do from guards. And that's true even in the mounted and armored uh, sections of the Zettel. They, they have like the five guards of the sword on horseback and then like stuff that you can do from each of the guards. And um, the longsword teaching is conspicuously different from that um, structure. Mm-hmm. Right, so the with Fiore, being a sensible man, he starts off with an introduction and then guards and basic attacks. And then he goes to situations which are created from that. Whereas with the Zettel, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be like, okay, we're going to go straight to attacks. Right. Or types of cut. And your opponent is the one fencing from the from the guards. Does it give, at that point, named guards, or is it all kind of like when your opponent holds the sword on their shoulder? I think the first named guard appears at the beginning of the Krumpel. Yeah, Ox. Oh man, they really could have done with a good copy editor, couldn't they? <laughs> yeah, they they name the guard that your opponent's doing. So like, yeah, when uh, when the Krumpel is... is uh, "Quote unquote breaking, or I guess countering the the uh, guard of the ox, and mentions ox, and then you know subsequently uh, from the day and plow and uh, poplar." Hang on a second. Doesn't it in the crump house start off with the shrankhut, uh, which is even no. one of the four guards? But we right? can shrankhut no, comes that, after ox. That comes after ox. Okay. I think that's the first name guard that that we're supposed to stand in. I'd agree with that, yes. Okay. That's possibly a discussion for down the line. That's an interesting observation, too. I never thought of that. So the there's... And we can talk about this a lot more when we get to those sections, but I think there's a certain logic to the way the five strikes are laid out in that each one is sort of building on the section before it. So I think with the general lesson and the five strikes, it is a coherent order of instruction, right? Where the, you learn how to st- do the striking in the general instructions, and the Zornhau is specifically sort of optimized to fight against that that fencing that you learn the general instructions. And then the Krumpau, if you go into the like the Dresden gloss, is supposed to be able to clean up web tool for anything that isn't that kind of fighting. And it sort of is a slowly expanding the idea of what fighting is through each of the five strikes. Um, so I don't think that they're they're just out of nowhere. We're going to throw you into a bunch of random techniques. There is a, a definite logic to the way they're structured until you get to the Hauptstücke. Um, but they're also not ordered the way we sort of expect martial arts instruction to be ordered. I agree with that. Um, but I don't think that the five hues are, at the very least, I don't think the five hues are uh, incompatible with the ideas given in the 12 Hauptstücke. And oh, definitely not. Yeah, I think that like they're they're the the ideas are not contradictory, and I personally think that they uh, they match each other quite well. 
but uh, but it needs a little bit more lesson planning. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to lay into the idea of lesson planning a little bit actually, which is that I think a lot of the ideas we have about how you teach martial arts are based on quite recent kind of cultural ideas. And sort of, okay, a martial arts class means you stand around and you learn a bunch of guards, then you learn a bunch of counters, then you learn some like theory and stuff. Um, whereas, especially if you're teaching in relatively small groups or relatively one-to-one, you don't really need to front load a lot of that stuff. You can pretty much start teaching people just, okay, like hold your sword and do the thing I'm doing, or hold your sword and I'm going to do this thing. And now, you know, you do this thing and I'm going to show you how a counter works, and then I'm going to do the thing and you're going to practice the counter I just showed you, right? And, and you kind of pick up principles by, osmosis yeah. as the teaching is going on so the way i the way i approach this stuff when i'm teaching it and i'm helped in this by ringick uh dancing and lev split this into two lists they treat it as being uh you have the five cuts and then you have the 12 hauptstück um whereas ringick says you have the 17 hauptstück which are all 17 of them including the five cuts and the other 12 and the way i teach this to people is basically that we start by learning some basic fencing and then we learn the five cuts as cool things you can do and solutions to various problems you're going to be encountering. And then when we come to Lager and Versetzen and stuff, it's an idea of applying. I use it to kind of apply theory and coherence to the stuff you've already learned as specific cases. I totally agree with that. and But I have a different way of thinking about it. The way I think about it is if you're trying to teach somebody to play a board game, and it's a complicated board game, um, and you know, you're the beer has been flowing, and you're trying to have fun. So you don't want to like read the rule book like end to end before you get started. You want to just give the person a couple of tools that they can use to you know know how to make a turn and like get through the game. And then as the game is going, they learn how to play it. And then maybe after a playthrough. They look into the rule book and see the specifics, so they can start like forming strategies and stuff. So I and think then after two years they go, "Oh my god, ports didn't work like that at all." Yeah, and then you start making house rules, and yeah. I think we agreed last time, or maybe the the uh, the one before that, that um, that Settle already expects us to to know some extent of fencing. So maybe like um, easier um, stuff like I don't know Hooten or guards, um, we we are already expected to know them, and um, that's just like the next level. Sure, maybe like the like the common guards, I guess. Yeah, maybe. But, uh... I think it's it, it's worth pointing out that as well as the guards. And the hues laid out here, the Zettel and the other sources recognize that there are other positions, there are other cuts that just doesn't like them, or it thinks they can be folded into these. Is that fair? So, so we've already got the the kind of tension between here are five cuts, but you also have over hues and under hues. Yeah, you, yeah. This definitely isn't like a comprehensive index of all the possible things you could do while fencing. <laughs> Right. And, and right. I think he said once that something that stuck in my head ever since, I think it was UT, it might have been someone else, that the interesting thing when studying historical fencing treatises is not what they teach sometimes, but it's what they leave out. And how many things have you learned in various classes or you just sort of do naturally that is not covered in the book? And why do you think it's not covered? 
and that's an inquiry that can go really far and teach you things about the source. Um, was that UT? Maybe I've definitely said some things along that um, along those but lines. But yeah, so just just the idea that the source may not be is not trying to be the encyclopedia of all fighting, but it's specific instructions and why are those instructions there instead of other ones is one of the important questions to really understand what you're reading. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that's all, I've always been bamboozled with in this <laughs> list of guards uh, or in this section is why don't they list Long Point as a guard? Because later on in the in the system, it goes on about how great Long Point is. Noblest and best. It's too noble to be in that list. Well, that's because they don't actually list any guards in this list. Yeah, it sort of says four, four of them, and then they cover four, and then they're like... Yeah, they say back. there's four of them, but they don't say which four they are. <laughs> okay, so, so we will just bring like, fuck out. Right, it's Shrankut, Longpoint, um, Naven Woods, Einhorn. But, yeah, like, yeah, there's definitely some interesting questions like that. Um, I can't, I can't, I'm not an expert on this at all, like, I've barely even read it, um, but Hans Madel certainly seems to have a different, maybe a more complicated relationship with the Five Strikes, whereas in the RDL and Gloss, it, they're sort of specific, fairly simple strikes that you use to um, engage in specific contexts. But Madel develops the idea a lot, and his idea of the hidden strikes is that they're hidden names for common strikes. So they're strikes that everybody knows, but he, by using a, a name, it disguises what you're actually talking about. Um, and then he also goes into most of his strikes are compound actions, <clears throat> um, where the common strike is the initiating action, and the actual strike that seeks to hit the opponent comes afterward. But his idea is that the Zornhau is the secret name for the Obahau. The Krumpau, he doesn't give a common name for. The Tverhau is the secret name for the Miedelhau. The Shielhau is the secret name for the Vexelhau. And the Scheidelhau is the secret name for the Sturzau. And his teachings certainly use the, um, the Sturzau and the Vexelhau as core components of how he presents the strike, which is not necessarily the same as, as in the earlier texts. But also, I mean, I know Christian Trosclair has interpretations that shows how the, te the cuts can be derived from each other and how they're fundamentally the same action, even if they're not the same exact movements. So I don't know, metal, metal sort of muddies the water, but he's trying to present maybe some more sophisticated version of his own devising or just a different thread of the Lichtenauer tradition than the one that we're talking about. Yeah. That, that really sounds like a, a halfway point to Maya, doesn't it? Yeah, and certainly the, the manuscript of metal that we have was written in the 16th century, and you can draw commonalities between a lot of the 16th century sources, including Jörg Wilhelm Hutter and Joachim Meyer and Paulus Hector Meyer, and, and a lot of those guys are doing different things than what we see in the 15th century, but not different from each other as much. So maybe just an evolution of how it was taught. Although if Johanna's findings are play out and we find out that metal was a master in the 1570s, 1560s, or 1470s, 1460s, then maybe we'll have to reevaluate what any of that means. When do we start seeing, sorry, we're off on a rabbit hole now, when do we start seeing the uh, 
the should we call them like the common fencing cuts? So like the the Fugel How and that kind of stuff. When do they start showing up? Early sixteenth century. I think Ponfeint is the first one to teach the Flugelhau, um, or call it that. There's in Codex Wallerstein, there's a concept of an elbow cut, which may be the same thing and may not. There's really no way to know. And if that's fourteen seventies. Um, I'm sure he'll tell you that the elbow cut is just as virtue to the low opening. Um, right, but the Flugelhau is also just a rising Tverhau, really. But the Flugelhau is is like a closed eyes compound action, right? Yeah, it's always it's typically framed in, as part of like a three cut sequence. Right, and that's not necessarily well. The way I read it, that's not how the um, the Wallerstein one is. It's you cut in, and if they do this, then you do the elbow cut instead of just going for it right away. So a little maybe slightly slight different use cases there. Yeah, I'm really I don't know. Having a quick look, it looks like Martin Cyber who has this. He has a new Zettel. Um, he he doesn't have any of these uh these common fencing cut that I can make out on a quick scan. Maybe I'm wrong. He he does mention a few terms that also show up in Jochen Meyer, like the um what's it called the strike the rebound cut and the blind cut and some of those. The Prelhau. Yep. Meyer Meyer has a lot of names for compound cuts of single actions, which is an interesting parallel to some of what middle the metal attributed gloss is doing. But Meyer also admits that like all of his different cuts are like just variations on like the main one. Well he calls them master cuts because he's Meyer and they're the cuts that the old masters did. Is it um is it the Pole House book MS three two two seven A that casts the shade saying that people c- come up with fancy cuts and give them new names, but really they're all part of Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Like they invent fancy combinations of cuts and give them shiny names. Yeah. Sorry, Johanna, we're dissing Mayor now. We're dissing everyone, don't worry. Um, one of the things <laughs> I find interesting in this material is the civic order that everything's been put in. Because, like, the order's very, very consistent to the, the 17 pieces. Jess Finley's done some interesting uh, stuff around hunting dictionaries and hunting glossaries. And one of her observations is that a lot of the pieces, uh, like the orders of the of the Hapshuk, um, parallel the orders, they're terms that you see in hunting and they appear in the same order that you see them appear in a hunt. So you have Lager, Versetzen, Nakreisen, Uberlaufen, Absetzen, um, and that order is, you have a beast in its lair, in its Lager, which is the term for an animal lair, among other things it could mean. Um, and then the thing you can do to an animal which is in its lair is you can force it out of its lair, which for which the term is to versets it. Um, and then you have to pursue it, which is Nakaraz. Um, and when you run it down, you kind of finish chasing it and pin it down in a place. You have overrun it, Uberlauf. Um, and then you have to like set it off and kill it in close range and stuff. And like Absetson is actually a term which comes up a bit there. So you have this series of Stuck that all have names which reference back to hunting potentially and are appearing in the order that a metaphorical hunt would occur in, um, which which is a really interesting bit of parallel. And, and definitely this would have been... And if you're a bunch of young knights, then that's totally like a way you're going to be thinking about something. What you do on a Saturday. And a Monday, and a Tuesday, and a Wednesday. 
Finley would be is, is always the first to, to to say though that it's not necessarily the most significant thing that these are hunting terms, but that the same set of terminology appears in a lot of different medieval spheres. Like they're also terminology that very often appears in romances and allegories about love and relationships um, use the same terminology as the hunt and as fencing. And it's sort of this set of universal metaphors that was a lang- the language of a certain class in the medieval period is what it sort of is emerging as. So these were words that they used in a lot of different contexts and understood they sort of had a shared idea behind them. So it's not so much that hunting and KDF are the same, but that these are both aspects or you know manifestations of this idea and this worldview. The kind of language of pursuit and striving and stuff. Um, cool. Um, so yeah, she's really done impressive research trying to find different contexts when this terminology is used. Uh, the hunting is the one that's sexiest to a lot of people. I find the hunting one particularly interesting because it fits so well with the order as well. Um, and that's a really interesting parallel. Cool. There's a couple of little bits, a couple of the little sections from the lines here of the Zettel that I want to pick up on, because I'm sure we'll have something to say about them. And one of them is the the line Alba Verset. Yes. Uh, the poplar tree versets, I think, is what that actually yes. is. <laughs> the, so, so, the, the poplar tree attacks is the tra- correct translation for that. So explanation of this this in-joke to the readers is Alba is the name of one of the guards, one of the positions, and it's usually rendered as fool. And I forget what the basis of that was, isn't it? Um, Meyer. Abba? Meyer says it means fool, basically. Yeah, yeah. he he explains the uh, origin of the word as, as basically meaning fool. And he explains his reasoning for why it's the fool is because... I'm paraphrasing again, I don't have the book in front of me, is because um, from Albert, you can't do any direct attacks. You can only wait and parry somebody who comes in and then attack after the parry. And only a foolish person would do that. Yeah. <laughs> so Paulus Hector Meyer, on the other hand, um, is most notable in HEMA, or should be most notable because his book is written in German and then translated to Latin. So it's the only Latin witness that we have of Lichtenauer's teachings. But the, his Latin translator, whoever he was, translated Alba as um, Populus Alba, which means poplar tree. And we can find both of these definitions in Grimm for the word Alba. So which Grimm is a dictionary of early New High German. So they're both at least surface level valid translations, but fool is the one that everyone uses in poplar tree is less common for some reason. Yeah, so Steve's jumped on this poplar <laughs> explanation. And then versets is normally given as... Uh, I, I like to give it as displace. No. T likes, T likes misplace. Steve likes... Parry. Or parry. attack. Or attack. Or attack. Um, because why not both? <laughs> exactly. And then when you put the, the two words together, I, I think, because I'm simple, that this is just a list. And they went with it because it rhymes with the next line. So that's definitely one reading. Um, there was a discussion about this on KDF Technique Discussion a couple of months ago, actually. And I gave at least three potential meanings for this line. Um, one of them is that these are the next two on the list. 
One of them is that if you're in Alba, you have to do versets and you have to parry um, if you read it as parry. And the third one, leaning into the fool reading of Alba, is that Alba versets means that parrying is foolish, so only a fool is like deciding to parry intentionally. Instead of Meyer also agrees with that. Right. Yeah. And the, the fool will parry is certainly the most memorable reading of it. And that could be why it's there to make it easier to remember because that's a really nice coherent little phrase. Whereas Lega Fezet would be a just a list. Yeah. And maybe not as not not as obvious or not as memorable. Well, there's also the thing in general with anything memnonic that often the multi often multiple meanings are intentional because you're intended to remember all of them. It's a way to compact information. Yeah, yeah I, I like the multiple meanings thing. Mm -hmm. So even though I typically translate as poplar tree, I do use fool here because it seems to be more evocative, and I think it's meant to be evocative. Hmm. You actually use poplar tree in your PDF. Yeah, yeah. And in my 3227A translation, I think I did the same thing. So the gar I typically call poplar tree with a footnote, and same thing here. In your concordance, uh, you just have tree displaces. Oh, yeah, and sometimes I shorten it to tree because it's easier. Mm. Right, so the other bit that I want to, to work on is this list. The Zil section ends with a uh, slash bash slash stish mit stos mit stosen. The words thrust with a shove. And the idea of thrusting with a shove has come up a lot lately, hasn't it, Michael? Uh, yes, it has, because someone pointed out um, in a Facebook group, I think in the past week, um, and it spawned many different discussions on Discord and Facebook and maybe elsewhere, that Joachim Meyer seems to, in at least one place, use a thrust, and specifically an Ansetzen thrust, to brace his opponent in place by putting his point on his opponent's chest just to hold him there. And also it's been pointed out that um, Lekuchner does the same thing with a messer and seems to want to shove his opponent backward by thrusting his point into his opponent's chest. So rather than it being a stab that's not intended to penetrate, it seems like it's an action that requires a blunt point to actually have some pushing action. And I know and I'm reading all this conversation, it occurred to me that um, Stieg Stosen could mean thrust and shove with your point, as opposed to two different ideas. If you try and shove someone with a sharp point, you just stab mm -hmm. them, right? Unless maybe you could wedge it into their sternum somehow, but I, but typically most squishy parts on a person are not going to shove very well with a really sharp sword. They're just going to get stabbed. If you want to do a home demonstration for yourself, uh, put a piece of cloth over a banana <laughs> and stab <laughs> That <laughs> has been the popular way of testing this for some reason. <laughs> that was uh, which, which food was it? Was it Yabe? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jack. Uh, Ellis yeah. did some work on that <laughs> on the, the Hema Discord. It's a beat. This is what you guys are missing, including someone who wanted it to be known that it was an actual antique small sword they were using for the test. Yes. So you know more validity there. It's also. It's interesting to note that um, throughout the RDL glosses, whenever the word Ansetzen is used, there's there, there's the, the only target is never the face. So if they do mention the face with Ansetzen, it's face or chest. 
So if there's a connection there between pushing somebody away, like using Anzetsen to put push somebody away, then it's possible. There's plenty of stabs, like stitches straight to the face with no other options. But as far as Anzetsen goes, there's always the, the option for a non-lethal place to push against. Should, should also add that the reason why this is particularly an interesting idea and not something we can dismiss as a Meyerism or whatever is because in the armored and mounted um, fencing, I think or I think maybe just the armor, um, yeah. Anzetsen is used to wedge your point into your opponent's armor and then push him around. Always. So it's not, yeah, it's not that you're stabbing into an unprotected area. It's that you're trying to get your point with your spear or your sword so you can control your opponent's body. So this would bring Anzetsen unarmored in line with armored Anzetsen, if it's true. To go one further, um, Lignitzer has an Anzetsen, has specifically an Anzetsen to the chest, which is not even a part that's like an open target. You're, so you would just be Anzetsening straight into somebody's armor just to push them around to control them. And there were reasons to do this within judicial dueling and tournament rules about pushing your opponent out the door of the list or up against the list sometimes would be a win condition. So pushing your opponent was a very useful technique, depending on what on the conditions of your fight. And it's possible this could mean it was similar in unarmored fencing. Well, there's the the case of the two fencing masters fighting in Rothenburg, um, uh, which Jens Kleiner dug up a while ago, where they were made to fight with weapons with the points broken off, um, would be something where you could physically push someone around with the point of a sword, despite the fact it's nominally sharp. I'm sure we'll talk more about this when we get to the Anzetsen. Undoubtedly. By then we might actually have an idea of what's going on. Who knows? Probably not. There was a fantastic, um, at the Longpoint Armor Tournament uh, this year, uh, no, last year now, wow, um, there was a fantastic match with Bill Grandy, and I can't remember who was on the other side, where the opponent wedged their spear in Bill's elbow armor, uh, turned Bill around, and marched him clean out of the gate on the side of the ring, which was an instant win for the match. Um, with his spear wedged into his armor. And you could see Bill struggling and trying to get off it, but the guy just kept up pressure and marched him clean out the, uh, clean out the gate. I was going to mention on this line in general that uh, um, sorry for mangling the pronunciation. Uh, <laughs> it was better than mine, bud. <laughs> Martin Fabian uh, made the interesting observation uh, in a discussion somewhere that um, I think on KDF Technique Discussion Facebook, that the there's a later idea that you meet cuts with cuts and thrusts with thrusts um and you can kind of read this as saying slash fast strike so like catch strikes with slashes and then stish mitstossen um thrusts ah. with shoves so you can you can sort of split it up into two halves and say that this is you know cut against cuts and thrust against thrust against thrusts hmm. uh, which i thought was an interesting reading even though we've been saying shove for shtos, and it also sometimes seems to mean thrust, so... Yeah. Uh, at one point, it seems to mean punch in Talhofer. And mm -hmm. I love it, because it's like the only punch in uh, medieval stuff. No, there's a lot of punches in Wallerstein, but they're all called shtosen as well. Yeah, I, use, I usually um, translate it as uh, shove, but when it's a pommel shtos, I translate it as bash. And sometimes nice. it's thrust when it's with. Sometimes it is with the point. You are thrusting with the point with shtos. And yeah. striking is weirdly ambiguous. 
in this set phrase too, because the technique that we know of as striking in this time period is a certain type of rising cut with the short edge. But later on, it seems to be a much more general word that just means hitting. So like, like the English word strike. So it's hard to say what was intended here. Even within this time period, there's still general uh, general usage of uh, streich as you know the same as schlag, basically, mm. occasionally. And this is the Zettel, so they could have been aiming for a nice bit of alliteration there, more than anything technical. Or a tongue twister. Yeah. So I think we're running out of time, but should we take up the question of the five strikes section before we finish? Um, and particularly what this weird paragraph means. Uh, how do you mean? So there in the at the very beginning, so we, we've been talking most of this time about the four couplets that list out the, the five strikes and the 12 Hauptstücke. But prior to that, there's two couplets that introduce the five strikes, which is sort of the beginning of this section. And Ringek has a much longer gloss than the others do and says something that's kind of puzzling. Christian's translation uh, Christian Trosclair's translation is many masters of the sword do not do know nothing to say about this that you should not learn to make other hues but from the right side against those who arrange themselves against you in defense and if you select one hue from the five hues then you must hit with the one must hit with the first strike so he seems to be saying that uh, on a surface read these are the only attacks you should be using and also that when you use one of these attacks then you'll hit immediately and neither one of those things seems to be true, but I don't really understand what other meaning he could have here. And I thought we'd ask the group if they have ideas. What's particularly interesting about that paragraph is that the immediate the paragraph immediately following in Rienk then says, whoever can break that without being touched uh, will be praised by masters because um, your art is praised better than anyone who can't beat the five cuts. So there's immediately a recognition they aren't always going to work, which is interesting as well. Yeah, and certainly with the five hues are not a, are not about getting the the Vorschlag, the first hit, because there's I think an interpretation that most of us agree with that the very first of these five hues, the Zornhau, is done as a response to an incoming cut. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because when it's not done as a response to the incoming cut, it's a Scheitelhau. Right. Uh, no! <laughs> so okay. Well, we'll get to that. So, so getting back to this phrase, so the line in the middle about the person countering them, or I guess you know breaking them, it's a little ambiguous. It's to me anyway. It's not a hundred percent clear if they're talking if the if the person being praised is the person doing the five strikes or the person who can counter them. I think either one would make sense. So like my, my like you're saying my five strikes are so good that anybody who could, you know, counter them or block them, I would praise that person. That he my strikes are so good that like you know, if anybody can block them then that means they're really good. But it also makes sense. Kind of a weird thing to say. Yeah. I feel like that's that's the more likely reading of it, but um it could also be like anybody who can use these strikes to, I guess, break somebody else. Then that person is worthy of praise. Also, now the other, the other glosses just say, "Many masters of the sword don't know these cuts. Learn to do them from the right side." 
So this is all elaboration by Ringek specifically. I mean, possibly the reading shouldn't be necessary that the breaking them is also praiseworthy, but rather if you know these, you're going to use them offensively, you should use them offensively, and then you'll win the exchange. Or if they're going to, or if they attack first, you should break their attack with one of these um, instead, and then you'll be praised by the masters of the settle. Could be. That does seem to be the two use cases. I'm, yeah. I'm going to ignore Ringek for a second because I've oh. only got so many brain cells, and go and pick up on the fact that it says that you should learn these five cuts from the right. And I'm assuming that we're just ignoring left-handers because left-handers and fencing are wrong. But um, <laughs> we learned last time they can't fence, so according to left, yeah. But um, but so, some of these you definitely do do from the left. So with the the twer how, quite often you'll have a bind and then you'll cut round to the other side with a another twer how, and become a helicopter. But we're <laughs> the helicopter is not really supported by the glasses. Yeah, we'll get there when we get there, but. That technique is, I think, mostly comes from Meyer. But but in 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 this zettel, are we ever told to do a crimp how from the left or a shield how from the left or a... yes, never never from a high position though. So and then that you're you're referring to the general lesson instruction, right, T? Yeah, I'm call, I'm call, so you have crimp how from both sides, but only from Shrankut, um, which is a low position with the the sword point to the ground. Um, you have a uh, Tver from your left is only ever done after a blade engagement, after a bind. It's never done as an initiating action. Um, so there's definitely a... You're always starting... If you're starting one of these five cuts from above, you're always starting it from your right side. Um, and that very much calls back to the previous section and talking about, like, if you're a right-hander, you should be starting from above on the right. Um, and you're starting from above, you should do it from the right kind of stuff. I teach when I teach this to lefties, I just tell them to reverse everything because it told lefties to reverse everything earlier. It mostly works surprisingly well. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and don't you have some kind of bamboozling theory that a shield howl from the left is the same as a crump or something? You've explained it several times and it's never <laughs> stuck. It's like calculus. I agree with that. There's only two cuts. Well, basically, you have like, um, if you do the same hand position, sort of idea. You get either crimp on one side with the hands crossed, or uncross the hands, and you get shield. And then if you reverse your legs you and do it from the other side, you change which one becomes which. Uh, Jochen Meyer supports that pretty clearly. Not 100% clearly, but pretty clearly. Um, in his description of the three different ways you can do a shield how, one of which is also a crimp how, and he sort of describes, and the, the reading I get from it is that if you take the action that's your crampile on the right and you throw it against a cut that's coming, you sort of have to adjust the angle um, relative to your opponent and intercept a cut coming against your right side. It actually turns into a shield how, and same on the other side. So you can, a crossed arms, a cross armed shield how is typically your left side one, but it's the same as the right side crampile. And it just sort of is rotated slightly to more effectively cover the line. In later sources, isn't there the idea that uh, there's an old shield and a new shield? That's so the old shield is what will is what I care about, and then the new shield is like a crimp pal. But you twist your hands even further round and engage with the other edge. Yeah, that's in Meyer. That 
I'd have to go back and check which one is the old one, which one is the new one. But that's the same section where he says that. And the third shield how is the one where it's a deceit with the eyes that I guess we'll talk about when we get there. Because I went to it. Meyer's version is that the old one is the uncrossed arm shield and the new one is the hooked up crossed arm Krumpau style shield. Um, but yeah, in both the Krumpau and the shield house sections in the third part of his long sword, he makes mention of the fact that the Krumpau and the, that the there's a version of the shield house that's also a Krumpau and vice versa. Yeah, they, there's with these. I mean, I've always had the idea that with these uh, five hues, well, mostly the the middle three, the crump, the Tver, and the shield. The, like the when you get to the edge cases of like you know adjusting the angles and like doing weird stuff with the footwork, they kind of start to flow into each other. And what is one and what is the other kind of become aren't aren't quite as clear. So the other reason that you can treat Krumpau and Shielhau as being the same thing but mirrored is because we have a list of five items, right? Um, Tver is its own mirror, because we've got explicitly Tverhau on both sides given. And high and low. Krump and Shiel are each other's mirror. And then Zorn and Scheitler are the same action, and that completes the cycle. So Krump and Shiel have to right. be the so opposite sort of each other. it's sort of a circle of four things with five names. Yeah. Um, Damn it, but, T, I was going to go there next, and you got there before me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. You can definitely, if you teach someone, like if you look at the description for a left side Krumpau from Shrankhood, it talks about being uncrossing the arms and striking with the short edge. And it ends up being a position with your arms that's basically the same as the position you're in for a shield, just with slightly different footwork underneath it. And if you were to stand in a kind of tug sort of position with your sword on your left and they cut at your right side, and you want to do something that works like a shield how against that, you end up needing to cross your hands and cut down with the long edge in a way that's basically like a crumpow. So you get uh, just with different footwork underneath it. This is really hard to describe without actually seeing what's going on. But it, I mean, I'm it, doing it's, actions. It's not my fault you're not looking. I'm doing them too, and, and I don't think they can see it. So my question is, so you're saying like the difference is the footwork underneath. I, w I would say um, if you like do the opposite footwork, then so like can I do a crumpow where can I do a crumpow from the right where I step forward with my left foot? Is that still a crumpow? I mean, that's an interesting philosophical question. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I have an answer for it. So, yeah, my answer would probably be that it is still a crumpow because what it's going to do is the crumpow stuff. That's exactly like, what I was thinking. Yeah. The use the, case. Yeah, the, the, the tactical situation is what changes, right? Um, yeah. So if I have my sword on my right side, then anything coming at my left I need to cover, and anything coming at my like what I do changes. And the um, the way I'm going to cross around cross my arms depends on that. And if I switch which side my sword is on, I kind of mirror all those situations, so I end up with the mirrored sword positions. Right. So just like with the Scheidelhau and the Zornhau, there's a distinction between the physical mechanic you're using and the intended application and outcome of it. Cool. So the way the way your body is moving for the crump and the shelter are very similar um, in this in this uh, context, but the actual actions you're hoping to achieve are typically not. Yeah. So the other Steve mentioned a bit that the idea of crump, shield, and fair all flowing in together, um, and that's actually not something I used to agree with that quite a lot, but it's not something I particularly cover or teach much these days because I teach a very shortened, retracted version of the twerhal 
where it's very tight to the body and tight to the head. Um, so I teach crimp and shield as being extended actions, and then twer as being a shortened one. So if you do, but if you do a shortened crump, then is it still a crump? It depends. It depends. Um, <laughs> normally, when that, it that's, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. my point. Um, generally, if it's becoming very shortened and therefore working purely from hip action, I'll call it a twer. Pretty much whatever the angle is. Whereas if it's extended and still has arms driving downwards into it, more extended and still has arms driving downwards as part of its power generation, then I'll mostly call it a crimper shield, even if it's relatively flat. Sure. Makes sense. It becomes less about the angle and more about the mechanics I'm using to drive the action, because a very shortened action has to be driven differently to a very extended one, to right. a more extended one, to put power behind it. Personally, I think that um, use case trumps even mechanics that you use. If you're using something like a crump, then it's a crump. Unless it's like obviously not. That's fair as well. I, I think most of the time you're going to only get those in later situations deeper into an exchange when all of the use cases become weirder and the stucker less of a useful guide. Wait, wait, Steve. So if I just throw a diagonal cut, but I'm using it like a crump, at what point does it become a crump? Uh, I'd have to see what it looks like. I've taken on a case-by-case -case basis. I know it when I see it, Michael. I know when I see <laughs> um, but, and, but I wanted to um, go with what, what T just said about um, when you get deep into an exchange. At that point, so like after after the bind happens and like you get close, personally, I don't think it really matters what you call any of the strikes. So you have like the idea of if you crump someone's blade and then come around, you can like come around with, I guess it's fair how or a shield how if it's like on top or if it hits the side with the short edge. I don't really, personally, I don't really think it matters what you call that cut. It's just a short edge cut to the head at that point, because it has no use case. The bind already happened. You're just hitting the person in the head. It's just like a free he. I no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> that was my contribution. <laughs> um. Free hue actually is an interesting term, um, and we could maybe mention a couple of the terms which are missing from this list. Uh, free hue is one of them, and setson is another um, that we'll probably talk about a whole bunch later. Um, but I normally split up a free hue as being extended and about jumping away, which most of the follow-ons to the Krimpal aren't. Cool. Uh, is this a good point to wrap up? Does anybody have anything to add? Yes. Go ahead, Steve. One more thing. So I wanted to talk about uh, master hue again really quick. So I think the reason that most people say Master Hue if they do is uh, because of Meyer. But there are earlier instances where the term uh, Master Hue is used. The first, the earliest that we know of is in the Falconer Tournier book, which we don't have because it was destroyed in the Siege of Strasbourg by the Prussians. But it, there's a line in it that says, uh, note here stand the six Master Hues of the Longsword. Um, the Zornhau, Krumphau, Zverhau, Schielhau, Veckerhau, and Kronhau. And then mm. later on, we in um, Nikolaus of um, Jörg, Wilhelm, uh, Jörg Wilhelm's book, we have the seven master cuts. Um, the Zornhau, the Krumphau, the Halfhau, the Kreuzhau, the Zverwechselhau, the, <laughs> the, Zver the Scheidelhau, and the Kronhau. So, there are some non-Meyer um, earlier versions of the Master Hughes, but it's not in the RDL glosses at all. They never say Master Hughes. 
And they don't quite line up with what we expect the five Master Howen to be either. No. I really want to know what its fair Vexel How is. <laughs> Me too. So Vexel is like change, isn't it? Yeah. So it's just changing a cross cut. It's all right. So if we go with Hunt Madel, then the Vexel How is the common name for the Shield How. So the Zverk Vexel How is just a modified Shield How, clearly. Well, we've already discussed that the Zver How and the Shield How are the same thing, and the, right? Zver means a cross and Kreutz means cross. Clearly, the Kreutz How is another name for the Zverk How. I right. can't help with the Halb How. Yeah. My favorite one is the Faulkner, the Faulkner one because. Um, he totally leaves out the uh, Scheidelhau, replaces it with the Vekerhau and the Kronhau. Nice. Sweet. That's just really muddied the waters. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> well, don't worry about that stuff. It's just trivia. It's just trivia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So All right, if so, you need so, a reason to not use Meisterhau, there you go, because it doesn't mean yeah. what you think it means. So, uh, T, do you have anything to add at this point? You've just dropped something in chat. Um, so I was going to mention that I, there is, as far as I know, no evidence for this for a KDF context, but you see some similar stuff in some other fencing teaching ideas um, that you pay by the move or by the technique. So you, you pay a master to teach you some move. And then potentially the reason we have this list of the 17 Hauptstück is these are the 17 bits you pay for. So like you, 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 know, you go to Lichtenau and you're like, hey, dude, I hear your Shielhau is awesome. Can you teach me that thing? Um, and you pay him to learn just the Shielhau. Or whatever. Zettel is a word for receipt, isn't it? Something. <laughs> yeah, isn't it like the. the I'm um, also not aware of any evidence for this, but. Yeah, I'm definitely not aware of any evidence for it in a KDF context. Um, I think some of the. It's certainly not what you say in a restaurant these days. Bolognese and other Italian sources have some hints to similar ideas, but like it's not the same time or place. Yeah. Okay, so so listener, please ignore the last half an hour. <laughs> um, uh, I think we're going to wrap up here. Thank you very much for listening. I've been your host, Michael Smorridge, and our panel today has been Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chivester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thank you for listening.